I didn't have an official first job after university. So in my final semester of university, I had the opportunity to be a resident DJ for one of Singapore's biggest club collectives. They were called Massive Collective. It's funny that I say collective now. <laughs> it's like it kind of it's kind of a foreshadow. <laughs> Oh, hmm, interesting. So they're called Massive Collective and they were pretty massive in Singapore. Um, they were running some of the, Singapore's biggest clubs called Mink, at that time Dream and there's also Filter that was like Singapore's biggest VIP club. So I had this opportunity where they offered me to play at their clubs and in return the pay was substantially higher than average fresh graduate job. And I would, I would only have to do this like three days or three nights a week. So then I was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and so I did. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 71 of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today's guest is Sabrina Oi, co-founder and CEO at Com Collective Asia, a community for good mental health in Asia with a mission to normalize mental health conversations at home and at work. Now, before we dive in, I just wanted to throw in a little notice that this conversation today is a little heavy. We talk about things like depression, suicide, and death, as well as the state of mental health in Asia. Now, in this episode, we are very blessed to have Sabrina, who shares openly about her life growing up in Singapore, how she felt that she never deserved to be studying at Raffles, which is essentially the top school in Singapore, how she fell into the world of DJing, for the likes of Dior, Rolls-Royce, and World's 50 Best Restaurants, among others. But apart from that, we also talk about her struggles with depression, the first time she experienced it at the age of 11, how it gradually got worse, the moment where she actually contemplated ending it all, and how she ended up being properly diagnosed as bipolar. Sabrina was wonderful in just openly sharing her journey, as well as what it took to recover, and how Calm Collective Asia was birthed during the pandemic. I love this episode, and I'm sure you will too. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I was born and raised in Singapore, and I would say I came from a middle-class family. We grew up in my grandfather's house, and that looks like middle-upper, but I mean, we were okay, comfortable. I grew up with a lot of animals at home. So my mom was allergic to cats, and because we're a Muslim family, technically, officially, we couldn't keep any dogs. So the next best thing was to keep rabbits, like bunnies. Because my mom wouldn't be allergic and they were interactive enough. <laughs> so we had rabbits. I had my first rabbit when I was like five. And then I overloved that one. I gave it too many vegetables and then it passed away from uh, diarrhea. Um, so I, <laughs> I learned something there, I, I guess. But after that, I continued having other pets, which were also rabbits. We at one point had over 30 bunnies and we also had hamsters. They were, you know, obviously breeding. We can't stop them. And through that process, we were also uh, selling the offspring because we just couldn't keep all of them. <laughs> we also had fish at some point. Being in Singapore, I imagine that academics mm -hmm. must have been very important. Very much like you must uh, get top grades. Was that something? I mean, you went to Raffles. 
I did. I did. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think I got really lucky. And I can explain why I say that, right? So my parents, they're not your typical tiger parents. So I think I got lucky in that aspect. So my mom actually told me that, hey, Sabrina, I just want you to be average. (laughs) And I was like, average? Are you kidding me? I want to be more than average. So I was a bit like, huh? Confused when I heard that. So when I was nine years old in primary three, there was this uh, gifted education program thing that I got into. Um, so basically a bunch of kids at nine years old, they take a couple of tests, which tested your like English and mathematical ability plus some like logical reasoning stuff. And then I just happened to get into this program. And I was like, well, I don't like my class right now because they kind of put me in a class which was like full of competitive girls. And I was like, I want to get out of here. (laughs) So I told my mom, I want to get out. I want to join this other program, not knowing that it was going to be even more competitive. (laughs) I was naive. I did not have a full perspective (laughs) back then. But so then I joined the gifted education program when I was 10. And that pretty much set up myself up for the next eight years. Um, So I got into Raffles Girls Primary School when I was 10. And then my whole entire environment was full of overachieving people. (laughs) And then because of the program, I actually was very playful during those years. I was skipping extra classes, skipping school to play games, spend time with my animals at home, right? Do you feel like being in that environment was what pushed you to, because I read that you had that first depressive episode when you were 11. Mm, definitely, yeah. Because I think I had quite a shock when I moved from my like lower primary years into an environment that was kind of competitive. And, you know, you put a bunch of girls who are like maturing or going through puberty. And I think there was a lot of like gossip and like backstabbing and politicking happening in school that I... I was just not prepared for. So I think that first time when I had my that first ever depressive episode, I felt very detached from school. I felt like I didn't really belong anywhere. And I couldn't find a sense of meaning in the day-to-day things that I, I was doing, right? Like school didn't really mean anything. I was like spending time playing games. I mean, my pets were great. I would stick around for them, but they don't really need me, right? So yeah, I had my first depressive episode when I was 11. And then I managed to still get through the PSLE, primary six leaving examination, the biggest thing that a 12-year-old could go through, right? High stress, full experience for everybody. So when I was in primary six, my teacher actually took my mom aside and told her that Sabrina's not going to make it through the PSLE because she's just not been studying in school. She's just doing the bare minimum just passing. I was getting like 60 out of 100 for like everything across all my subjects. And that's not what you're supposed to get when you are aiming for the top school or when you're in that environment, at least. All my peers were getting like 90 something out of 100, right? And I, yeah, compared to them, I I was not going to make it. And for me, I wasn't really enjoying myself in school. So what happened that year of primary six was that my mom then just said, okay, Sabrina, we got to just drop all your extracurriculars right now. So I was doing ballet, I was doing piano, and those were actually out of my own interest. Like my mom did not force me to do it. So I stopped all of that. She enrolled me into math and science and English classes, as well as Malay classes, because I was kind of struggling everywhere. And then I made it through the primary six examination. But even so, I did not actually meet the cutoff point for RGS, Raffles Girls School, which is like Singapore's elite top 
whatever school, right? Still is, apparently. So I didn't make the cutoff point, but because I was in the gifted education program and I was learning Malay, there was this loophole, which meant that as a girl, there's no other alternative school that you can go to besides RGS if you are a female taking Malay as a second language. So I had to go to RGS. <laughs> as a, well, I suppose a happy coincidence. <laughs> yes and no, right? So the whole time I was like battling imposter syndrome. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess I got to go to the school. Fine. But then I was like, damn, I don't deserve to be here. <laughs> because like all my friends were like, firstly, I would stay in the gifted program and everyone had scored significantly higher than I did. I mean, I still had a decent score, right? I was supposed to go to still an above average school that I was posted to officially. But man, like everyone around me was just so academically gifted. And so even for secondary school, that was quite a struggle for me academically because I just, I guess I, I, I'm not interested. The only times I got interested in things was when I actually enjoyed the subject or if I liked the teacher. I never knew what I wanted to do. I, I guess I was just taking it day by day and I was just following things that I was interested in. So when I was in secondary school, I was in the 10-pin bowling club. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's really funny because I'm like pretty small. I'm like 155cm and quite slim built. So like I was carrying two balls, which were like 12 pounds each right, <laughs> with me every week to go for training. So I did that initially. And then after that, you know, in the background, all along, I've really loved music. I would always like go home and totally pirate <laughs> all the music available out there on, was it Napster, then LimeWire and all of yes. that. And I would like make CD mixtapes and stuff. Been there, so, done that. <laughs> ah, thank you. Yeah, right. So when I was about 14, 15, I started exploring the like local music scene. And this was where I stumbled upon a lot of like local talent. So at that point, I was listening to a lot of rock. And then I, I was just checking out all the rock bands. I was learning guitar at the time, like an electric guitar. I have my like Fender Stratocaster. So all of that, I, I really enjoyed just going into that and I was spending a lot of time going to the gigs, learning about music, listening to music, practicing my guitar, making friends around that as well. A big turning point for me during my secondary school years or my early teenage life was when I had this research project in school where we could choose any topic that we would want to go deep into. And I said that, all right, I'm going to do a project around Singapore's local English rock scene. <laughs> that was the exact phrasing, I think. Um, so this gave me the permission to go for gigs because <laughs> it's research. It gave me the permission to interview people who are these musicians, the producers, the past, like the gig organizers and all of that. I mean, I got to talk to them and learn from them. And eventually we had done the report and we realized that, hey, we still have some time. Why don't we, you know, from our learnings, raise awareness about the English rock scene in Singapore amongst our fellow students. So the idea to create a concert was born. So that gave rise to this like little rock concert that we did called Rock for Good. And we actually pulled in 1,300 people to attend a rock concert in Singapore's top girls school. That was really cool. So that was kind of like the turning point for me because like all along, you know, from the point I was like, I guess 10 to 15, I felt massive imposter syndrome because I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I wasn't supposed to be in this like elite environment because I'm just not interested in that or I'm just not good enough. But somehow I got here anyway, right? And I'm still here. <laughs> um, so 
Yeah, that was like the first time where I could see concretely that I was able to pull something together of that scale for a 15-year-old. Putting together a concert, organizing it, coordinating all the different volunteers, security guards, music talent, all of that together was just very confidence-building for me. And we also had sold tickets for the concert. So that was the first time I held $10,000 in my hand. Actually, it was like $13,000. And I was like, oh! Yeah, hey, we sold, so we sold tickets at $10 a piece, right? So yeah, that was the first time I realized that, oh, I could do this, right? I can see that I can get a team together, work towards a common vision and make some money out of it, create a product and make some money out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you go from that to becoming a DJ? You were like <laughs> DJing for like Dior, yeah. Rolls Royce. I don't think most people can do that. <laughs> well... Again, it was just me following my interests really, right? So, I mean, like, I've always liked music. I still do. As I grew older, after my A-levels, there was some time to kill. So, my bunch of friends and myself would, like, be partying every week. We would go three times a week or twice at least to a point where my mom's like, Sabrina, it's Wednesday night. Aren't you going out for ladies' night? And I'm like, huh? I'm tired now, <laughs> mom. Like, I need to stay at home. <laughs> there was one day where I went out to this club and it was, like, super cool. It was called the Butter Factory in Singapore. And one of the frontmen for the bands that played at my concert was actually DJing. And then I looked up and I was like, oh my God, that's really cool. I can do that. And I can control the crowd. <laughs> and actually, more importantly, I can get out of the crowd because everyone is so damn tall. <laughs> so I was like, people are just towering over me and they were like elbowing my head, right? I'm like, hello, excuse me. And I hated wearing heels. So I was just like, damn it. <laughs> Guys, I'm here. I just need to breathe, but I want to be here because I love the vibe and I love the music. So it was kind of a way for me to still get that vibe and music and energy without having to fight with <laughs> these tall people around me, towering over me. And because I love music, I've always really enjoyed sharing it with other people. Uh, so like from the mixtapes I was doing as a kid, I guess I saw this opportunity to pick up a new skill. I had some time. So I actually contacted that friend and I asked him to teach me how to DJ. And when I went into university, they just so happened to have a DJing club. So there was a studio and all the DJ equipment already waiting for me <laughs> to just go practice, right? And while in university, all the people around you are raring to party, right? So that's where I brought my event organization skills and started throwing parties for students. Did you feel like you were happy that you were exactly where you wanted to be? From the outside, it looks like you really had it together. You had something really unique. You were going to the very top. Not really. No, I have a lot of friends who are like, Sabrina, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Why are you spending all this time DJing and organizing parties? Isn't it a waste of time? Shouldn't you be studying and like getting better grades? My grades were not that bad. I was averaging a B plus. Okay. Fine. I still haven't shown anyone my university degree. In my own world, I was enjoying myself and I was making side money, just making some cash from that, using that to fund my travels as well. So I would like take trips here and there. I would buy usually like CDs, you know, back in the day it was still quite a, a thing. Usually I would buy like gadgets. Yeah, no. So I thought I was doing okay. But I did have a lot of people around me who kept questioning like what I was doing and, and then they didn't realize that I was also making money from it. With those comments and those questions filtering into you and making you doubt yourself. Definitely. So during university, it felt like it was fine, right? Like I still was working on my degree. 
I was making side cash, enjoying it. So life seemed fine. I was also motivated to make the money because my mum had told me at like, I think in the second or third year of uni, she was like, I'm not going to fund any more like extra things. Um, you're going to have to pay for all your travel from here on out. So then I was like self-motivated to make that extra cash. And it was much more fun than like, I don't know, working in a department store or something. So I would say that I was affected more so when I hit my mid-20s after university. I didn't have an official first job after university. So in my final semester of university, I had the opportunity to be a resident DJ for one of Singapore's biggest club collectives. They were called Massive Collective. It's funny that I say collective now. <laughs> it's like, it kinda, it's kind of a foreshadow. <laughs> oh, hmm, interesting. So they're called Massive Collective and they were pretty massive in Singapore. Um, they were running some of the, Singapore's biggest clubs called Mink, at that time Dream, and there's also Filter. That was like a Singapore's biggest VIP club. So I had this opportunity where they offered me to play at their clubs and in return, the pay was substantially higher than average fresh graduate job. And I would, I would only have to do this like three days or three nights a week. So then I was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and so I did. I got myself into the whole DJing thing regularly three times a week, maybe four times at nightclubs or at events when I was fresh out of uni. And I continued to do so for about like a year and a half after that. But during that time, I was hit with a couple of existential crises and depressive episodes as well. So it was a hard time. I started questioning myself again when I got hit by depression. Mm. I imagine that a lot of people would just think, if they're not familiar with this, that we all go through these existential crises. We all think, why are we on this earth for? Why am I doing my life? But it sounds like what you went through is actually different from what people would mm, go through. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I think there are a couple of triggers for these episodes, right? Usually it would be a combination of anxiety and depression coming up. And then it would kind of spiral into an existential crisis to a point where I'm like, okay, if I can't find an answer to the meaning of life or of my life and I can't find a viable pathway forward, then what's the point of living? That was like the thought process I would go through several times. But I think what happened when I was out of university, I think after university, I faced a couple of like stressful events as well. So I kind of have to like rewind to the point where my last semester was happening. What happened there was that I had just like from exchange, I had just broken up with my then boyfriend and I was going through a very strange transition period where I was trying to figure out where to live. So my parents split after my junior college and when I had come back from exchange, I wasn't sure where to live because my mom was planning a move to New Zealand and then my dad I had been estranged from for a while. So when I came back, I had actually nowhere to live. So I, my dad actually said, Sabrina, fine, you can come stay with me for a while. But he had just married his now wife. And I entered a very strained environment where it was very uncomfortable for me. So then I had to move out after one month of being there. And then I had moved to my mom's kind of like a temporary rental accommodation before she figured out her own life plans as well. So I, I think there were a couple of transitions that I had to manage. Like, what do I do with my life? The other part was, where do I stay? Where do I live? How do I find my grounding again? When the opportunity for that DJing job came around, which paid me then, I think it was about four to 
5K comfortably a month, Singapore dollars, versus a fresh grad salary for a marketing grad who would earn, like, if you're lucky, you get 3K. So when I had to choose between the two options, I obviously chose the DJing option because that would give me the financial freedom to potentially rent a place. I went on to live with my mom for a bit until she moved to New Zealand. And then I moved to my uncle's place. But the entire time I was in university, I was kind of distracting myself with school, with relationships, with friendships, with the whole DJing thing and events thing and exploring and finding myself. But then when university ended, and I think while I was doing the whole DJing thing, I had also a lot more time in between those DJ gigs. I think that kind of gave rise to the whole like, okay, I think there's a lot of trauma to unpack through like my parents' divorce, through my relationship with each of them as well. I felt like a big factor that played into my depression back then was, I guess, just feeling very alone and isolated and not having any direction or stability in life. Yeah. Do you try to seek help, talk to people, share your thoughts? Yeah, I, I tried. I mean, I talked to my friends a lot. They were pretty patient and understanding with me. But eventually, it got to a point where they're like, Sabrina, you're just asking for attention now. You, you're too much. We can't handle you. You're such a party pooper. And I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> so that's a different story, right? But after my mom left to New Zealand, my uncle or her brother actually kind of became the main parental figure for me. So I would talk to him about it a lot as well. By the same time, we were kind of new in this new evolved version of the relationship. I also wasn't super open with him. I felt pretty alone and misunderstood, I guess. Or I, I didn't feel like I had anyone to turn to who would fully like support me and unconditionally care for me, I guess. Which, uh, yeah, when, when I was going through those depressive episodes, yeah, it was hard to find a reason to hold on. Wasn't this around the time when you started going to therapy? Oof. So therapy actually started a bit later. So in 2015, that was when I was... So I was born in 1990, so 2015, 25. Early in the year, one of my close friends, um, we were kind of dating. You know how, how that goes, kind of. So I had stayed with my uncle for about a year. Then I moved out of his place and on the day I moved out, I was supposed to move out to my friend's place and we were still supposed to stay with two other friends. So that friend, he actually killed himself the day I moved out. Oh, no. I mean, the day I, I was moving in. <laughs> I think that shocked me quite a bit because he was actually the person who kind of helped me get through my previous depressive episode. Like He was there for me and he kind of took care of me during that time. So yeah, it was quite a shock for me when he decided to kill himself. It was quite elaborate as well and we, we found everything and he had left a note. and So it was after that I realized that it affected my ability to like focus, to concentrate. And also at that point, I was still DJing, but I also had taken on a, a job to fill my time in between. So I was working at a place at a startup and I actually had to take a break from work. Also not such a good idea because then I had more time to ruminate and question everything <laughs> so it's not great so yeah that actually kind of got me into a deeper depressive episode the worst that I had up till that point and that was when I first started seeking therapy I actually went to a GP general practitioner and he had given me 
some Xanax to just like tide myself through, make sure I sleep fine. He was the one who told me, why don't you go see a therapist? And then he gave me the contact to my first ever therapy session or my first therapist. Wasn't this like a private practice rather than public? Because your mom told you not to go to public. There was a story behind this, right? Yeah, yeah. So my mom, I did talk to my mom. When my mom moved to New Zealand, we actually started having a much better relationship because uh, I guess absence makes a heart grow fonder and we can just like focus on the essential stuff. So I did reach out to her when all of this happened and she was quite concerned. But she also said that, hey, you know, you, you might want to consider getting help from the private system and not the public system because you don't want to have that on your record. You never know if you might want to work for the government or someone who might be able to check your records. And that's actually not true. They don't have. It's actually not true. Now I know it's not true. Okay, so right now I've learned that legally one can only check for a person's records if you've been charged for something, if you have to bring that to court. Otherwise, no, it's not legal to share any records of that sort. So yes, I saw a private therapist and she turned out to be pretty good, but... Honestly, now I realize that by the time I sought help from her, it was kind of like me seeking help with stage four cancer because I was already suicidal. I was already, you know, really planning like, okay, I think I shall go the same way as my friend. Do you remember when like suicidal thoughts first started? Well, I mean, first of all, I really thought about it the year before, but I never had a plan. So I I actually recovered from that. But Mm. this time around, it was a bit different in 2015 because my friend Cal, who had done so for himself, he had left some documents behind which reflected the calculations that he did with the guess that he got to do it. So I knew that there's a painless and practical way of doing it. And he also left behind other documents on his laptop which we had access to. Because I mean, I was at home and that's where he left all his stuff. So obviously I went through all of it. (laughs) So having access to all of the documents and the planning process that my friend had, Yeah, it just seemed a lot more real for me. It became a much more real possibility to follow through. Suicide just seemed like a real option. What were you getting out of? I would say it's an option for escape. It was an escape from my brain. It was an escape from all the thoughts that uh, that I was experiencing, all the thoughts and the feelings. I think existentially, I just felt like, you know, if he had quite a good life and he's really smart, kind as well. And if he had a reason to get out of this life, then maybe I do too. The other factor was also, I would say it's a combination of like anxiety and depression at work. So I guess on a biological level, I was also not processing this in a healthy way. So what depression felt like for me was that I was experiencing a lot of brain fog, which meant that I wasn't able to apply myself intellectually. I wasn't able to understand what I was reading very well. I wasn't able to communicate coherently, verbally and in written form. So that was like really scary for me because I was just like, oh my God, suddenly I'm, I'm dumb. I mean, I think I shared this in my LinkedIn post and I was talking about how if I wasn't smart, then who am I? If I'm not able to communicate, if I'm not able to be effective at my job, then what's the point? Then who am I? And even with the whole DJing thing, um, when in my depressed state, I was not enjoying music. I didn't care about my gigs. I was just so emotionally detached from what I was doing. Then there was just no point in doing anything. So when you took the antidepressants, did you feel that there was a change and suddenly everything came alive again? 
Oh man, it's not sudden. <laughs> but, um, it wasn't sudden for sure. That was 2015. And I don't remember if I saw a psychiatrist then. But the next year, I had like an even worse depressive episode. And I've written about that as well. But that was actually when I started seeing a psychiatrist more regularly and started taking medication more regularly. In my experience, it took at least about a month to a month and a half before the antidepressants kicked in. So initially, it was all about titration and finding the right medication for me to be on. And then the other part of it was around adherence. So I would refuse to take my medication <laughs> many times before I finally accepted that this was a condition to manage and that medication does help. So it took me a while to finally accept that. So I, I remember being diagnosed in March of 2016 and we thought that I had just major depression and then I was like taking it and not taking it and it wasn't really going anywhere. I tried to kill myself again in April and then realized I don't really want to die and then from there I, I just decided to give it a proper shot. So looking at the timeline, diagnosis was March and then April was like, okay fine, I'll, I'll finally accept and then towards the end of May was when I finally started feeling like, okay, I guess I can do life again. So it took a while. It took a while to find the right combination of medication and to accept the whole thing and for it to kick in as well. Yeah, I read that it took you like two years or so just to find the right combination, right? Yeah, for sure. So I was misdiagnosed, right, initially with major depression. But then further down the road, we were wondering why the antidepressants were a bit too much for me. And I would be like kind of over the moon when I was recovered uh, or seemingly recovered. And I would like not be sleeping, I would be like going out all the time, I would start 10 new projects. And then that was when I googled, I did some googling, I, googling and I realized that bipolar disorder was a thing. And so eventually I got properly diagnosed and, and now, yeah, things are fine. <laughs> what is the difference between being mm -hmm. depressed and being bipolar? And I read that there are four types of bipolars as well. Bipolar, yeah. So... I'm not going to go into like the details of the different types, right? You can probably find a YouTube video for that. But the main difference between depression and bipolar is that if you look at depression as a unipolar depression, like one-sided, right? Then if you look at bipolar as two poles where you have still depression, but another pole, which is like what they called mania, and both ends of the, both ends of the poles can, can show up differently for each person. For mania, what that means is that firstly, I think your sleep will give way. You'll need much less sleep. Some people don't sleep for like one, two days. Some people may need like three, four hours of sleep. For me, it was about four hours or three hours. The other part would be you'd have like a lot of racing thoughts and ideas and you would typically have also like grandiose plans where you're like, all right, I've, so the sort of things I've heard would be like, ah, I think I was sent by God to do something really important here for mankind. The other thing might be, oh, I really want to stop climate change and I have a plan for it after like two nights of research, right? Or one night of research with zero prior experience. Hypersexuality is also another one. You'd be like super confident in your mind, super appealing to everybody and then you go do things. <laughs> And then you're also super sociable, where you make a lot of new friends, you talk, you might also talk at a kind of a rapid speech. So those are like the, the common traits of mania. 
So for me, I have bipolar 2 disorder, which means I have hypomania, which is a not so life-threatening version of mania or like so, not super extreme, but it's also characterized by more depressive episodes. So that's yeah. me. And I saw this blog post where you basically said there were three phases to your recovery journey. It was like, <laughs> yes. survive, leave, and thrive. Survive was 2016, which you have described was your lowest point. Mm. Why, why was mm. that? So my lowest, lowest low, which I hit in uh, March of 2016, on that day, what happened was that I had my debut at Zouk, Singapore. Um, Singapore's like most famous nightclub. And I was supposed to go for a business trip the next morning. And leading up to that, I had already felt depressed. And I was very stressed out because I wasn't able to perform at work. I wasn't able to enjoy music. So those symptoms came up again. And leading to this day, it was like, oh my God, big day because two big things were happening. So what happened was that like, it all came to a point where I was just like, oh my God, this is too much. On that late afternoon of that Friday, I don't know what it was, but I, I just felt like I had to give up and I just couldn't go on any longer. And I found myself at the top of a building, just yeah. wanting to kill myself. So someone like saw me. It was huh? like Everston Park, right? There yeah. Were there was a film crew that was just there for some other filming project. They saw me from afar. I didn't see them. I don't know where they were. As I was up there with my like legs dangling off the, the ledge, right? And I was like constantly thinking like, oh my goodness, if I jump now, I'm going to leave such a mess behind. So I, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> um, I was just like, ah, damn it. If someone sees me do this, then they're going to be traumatized. Ah, I don't want to do that. So it's so sober, right? So yeah, the, the police came and then I was like, oh no, I'm not going to go like this. So I can't jump now. So they, they came. So it was like the police and the firefighters that came. So they got me off the ledge. So they asked me, so girl, did you want to kill yourself? And I was like, yeah. Are you depressed? Yeah. Okay. So now we got to handcuff you. We got to arrest you because um, that's a crime. Damn it. <laughs> so I was like, oh no, I thought I would just be let off and I could go home and live my life or find a way, you know, somehow, because it was kind of like a wake up call for me. <laughs> and, then, and then I was thrown into jail for a night. <laughs> And because, I guess like committing suicide yeah. was a crime in Singapore at the time. It right? used to be. Yeah, it used to be a crime to commit suicide and to attempt suicide. So yeah, I had to be cuffed and jailed and then sent for psychiatric assessment. And I had to then be sent to the Institute of Mental Health, handcuffed to a wheelchair so I wouldn't run off. <laughs> so it was all really, really embarrassing for me because I missed my gig. No one knew where I was. All my friends were there as well because it was like my de debut. So I didn't turn up. I didn't turn up for my flight the next morning for work. So I let my bosses down and I only got out at, I think about 10 a.m. the next day. And I saw all these messages from friends who were like, where are you, Sabrina, right? So that was all really, really embarrassing. And this, all the, the shame actually really hit my self-esteem. And I then decided to stop DJing at that point for a while, while I figured things out. And I left my job because I just couldn't deal with that stress to perform. So that was my lowest low and I had to pretty much hit reset. What do you think was helpful yeah. in helping you go from there to recovering? So I would say it was my mum, actually. So, you know, despite the trauma that we've gone through in our relationship, my mum came back to Singapore and she took it upon herself to take care of me day to day and see me through the treatment process. 
So she actually brought me to my first psychiatrist. And then the psychiatrist also referred me to his contact who was a therapist. And that was the first time I, I started medication. And my mom stuck around for about a month. And that actually helped me, a month and a half. And that helped me start my recovery journey. Since 2016, I would say that I have been on an upward trajectory overall, even though, you know, there were some points where I was like, damn it, I missed my medication again. Or I ref- I, there were a couple of times where I thought I was like, yeah, I think I'm all well and good. I shall stop now. And that was always a bad idea. <laughs> um, so I did that, I think, twice. And then I would say I, I, I really only stabilized from around 2018, 2019. And that's when you started holding a regular job. You were DJing again, weren't you? Yes, I went back to DJing, I think around 2017, actually. So my hiatus from DJing didn't last very long. I'm so grateful that I had a contact who, for some reason, still called me back. It wasn't Duke, it was a different club. But yeah, I'm really thankful that they did because, you know, it's still something I enjoy. But I knew then that I could not rely on DJing as my livelihood anymore. It's not sustainable to my current lifestyle. I always made it a point to DJ only the early sets so that I could make sure my sleep was was okay. Wasn't this around the time when you released an article called How I Went From Leaving to Living? Yeah. Actually, leaving life to living again. Um, That's what I meant. So that was October of 2019, I remember, because it was World Mental Health Day before it was popular. (laughs) Sorry, no, it's it's been very popular the past two years. I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, it's trending, eh? Um, But hey, mental health has been a thing since you've had physical health and since humans were humans. Yeah, and I, I bet like animals have mental health too. So in 2019, August of 2019, I actually started going for life coaching. So I had gone for therapy consistently still, but I there was something in me where I was like, okay, well, therapy has gotten me this far and I'm, I'm still committed to it, but I want to start planning for my life now. I think I'm ready to look at my future because between 2016 to 2019, it was all about, all right, let's just go day by day, manage this condition try to survive and then just enjoy it for a bit. <laughs> and then, yeah, I think around 2019, I, like, things were stabilizing for me work-wise. I had been confirmed at my then job. And yeah, I think it was time to want something more out of my life. So through my coaching process, I found a lot of clarity around what I wanted to do with my life in general. And what I realized was that I wanted to find a way to help other people with their mental well-being, not just with like the bad side of mental health, right? But to find a way to just overall live happier and healthier lives. I also realized that one of the things that I could do that's within my control and within my ability was to write about my experience. And that was also a way for me to reflect on what I've gone through over the past few years. Was the writing difficult? I mean, you share your story now and I'm just in awe that you can share it so openly, but was that the first time you were sharing? I mean, the people around me, like close to me, knew about it in bits and pieces. But that was the first time I shared about it openly. And it was actually surprisingly easy to write about it. So what happened was that I wrote the article over, I think it was either three or four mornings. So before work, I would wake up a bit earlier and I would start writing from, say, 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. Or was it 7 to 8.30 over three days or four days? I did some editing as well. So yeah, it just all kind of happened in the span of one week. And I knew that World Mental Health Day was coming up. So I kind of like gave myself that deadline. I said, okay, 
there's World Mental Health Day. This means a lot to me. And my birthday was the day after that. So it was also a gift to myself. So World Mental Health Day is like the 10th, birthday is on the 11th. I posted it on the 9th just so that I could like be done with it. (laughs) So yeah, so that was kind of like the timeline I was working with. And it was a very straightforward process for me because I think I had it all inside of me already. What was the response like? Did it surprise you? So when I published it, I kind of like went into hiding. I turned off all my notifications <laughs> and I actually went off for a dinner, a social gathering thing of like 20 people. Big deal. So I went for this gathering. The next day I started getting responses. So I posted it on my Facebook only, if I'm not wrong. And I got a lot of messages from my friends who said, Sabrina, I just read this. I had no idea. And then there were also people who said, oh, this sounds like something that I've gone through. And I didn't know that you've also gone through it. I didn't know other people went through this. It really resonates with me. The other thing that came up was also people telling me that they've been struggling and that my article had helped them a lot in processing what they're going through and figuring out a pathway to help themselves. So yeah, I I, I didn't really know what impact it was going to you know make, but I honestly just did it for myself. I needed to kind of make peace with the past few years and the struggle that I went through. It was very liberating to put out there. Did it start you on this journey of thinking, oh, this really reached out to lots of different people. Maybe I should share more and find more people who are interested, who want to find out more. No. Okay, so so I recently learned this term called uh, vulnerability hangover. <laughs> so I was a bit hungover after that. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> exposed. I feel a bit exposed and I need to like chill. <laughs> so following that post, I mean, I responded to people and to friends. So I did that. I did do a follow-up with individuals. From a bigger picture perspective, I thought that I would write another two articles about so that's so why I meant to write a three-part article. I've only done one out of three, and it still stands at that one out of three since that day. <laughs> it's been two and a half years. I have not done anything else, but I've done other stuff. Yes, I got distracted by like Calm Collective, right? So <laughs> what happened? No, I, I, I kind of just went back to focusing on my own life. But that said, I still went for life coaching and I knew that at some point I wanted to find a way to get creative and help people again. I wanted to bring back that 15-year-old version of Sabrina because I think that was really... I guess me at 15 years old doing that concert was the start of discovering who I really was. It was me authentically putting myself out there and I wanted to bring that part of me back. So that was always the intention, eventually to create something that would help other people. But I didn't know what that was going to be. And then the pandemic hit. (laughs) Yeah, so then the pandemic hit. And then I was just like, damn it, I'm at home and I'm stuck and I cannot travel. And we have a month of lockdown. After a week in the lockdown, I realized that mental health services were considered non-essential and I couldn't see my therapist in person. I couldn't see my psychiatrist in person, but he still kept his uh, office open anyway. But my therapist was like, oh no, we haven't figured out this Zoom thing, right? And I was like, ah, okay. I was quite upset because uh, mental health didn't seem to be an important thing when the lockdown was happening. Back then, when I was in my job, I was already organizing webinars for our regional clients. 
So then I thought, okay, why don't we do a webinar series for people who are in the lockdown, just like me? <laughs> so I called up two friends and I was like, okay, guys, let's, got, let's do something about this. One of them was Alyssa and the other guy was Lukman. And Alyssa and Lukman immediately said, yes, we have more time and we agree that the cause is important. Separately, we've also talked about mental health and they all know my journey as well. So yeah, it just happened to be a, a very opportune time to start something and it was on the side of our jobs as well it was because we also had a lot more time there was not much socializing to do or anywhere to go really for us it was just like okay we just wanted to teach people strategies to cope in the lockdown that was it so there's still this like running joke today where i was like so guys i i conned you into doing this for a bit longer beyond the lockdown huh <laughs> but the initial idea was really to just do a one-off summit where we would bring together a bunch of folks who could talk about coping with relationships in the lockdown. I called my former therapist. We also talked about mindfulness. We talked about journaling. We also talked about welcoming the change that the pandemic brings. So I called on my coach to, to do that. And for the first summit, we had about 300 people join us. It was just like a Saturday afternoon because everyone's stuck at home, nowhere to go. So Saturday afternoon, 2 to 5.30 p.m., sitting at home, hosting all these talks and interacting with people online. So that was the first version of Calm Collective. And then we just discovered that we really enjoyed it and organized more and more and more talks. Also, the, the lockdown got, got extended. So we were like, ah, damn it. So I guess we have more time to do this. And... It's called Calm Collective Asia, and there's mm -hmm. a significance behind the word Asia, right? Where is it? Well, okay, it's very simple. So first of all, Alyssa is not Singaporean. She's Filipino. So she was like, Seb, I'm not Singaporean, so this cannot be Calm Collective Singapore. <laughs> and Asia is also important because there's a lot of cultural nuances that are similar across the region. Like this whole tiger parenting thing, filial piety is also a big theme here. So yeah, we, we, from day one, just decided to call ourselves Calm Collective Asia. Obviously, the so-called superficial uh, reason was because of um, Alyssa's reasoning, but we also t uh, mutually agreed that we had to look at Asia from a bigger perspective because, I mean, like a lot of our friends are also not like Singaporean. They're various folks who have grown up in an Asian environment with Asian parents. We looked at it from a regional perspective from the start. What was the response like when you reached out to people asking them to speak at your events? Because you've had so many oh, people. You've had like, people from LinkedIn, supporters, yeah. musicians. You even had... Uh, politicians as well. Politicians, Gosh. yeah. And Dr. Kendik, yeah. who was like global head of employee wellness. Candice, yes. She's great. Your CalmCon. So what was the response like reaching out to them and asking them to speak? Hmm. I don't recall having heard a no or an outright no yet maybe due to like a scheduling conflict maybe people are just very nice but i mean for the lockdown it was pretty straightforward i think from a young age i've just learned to have a thick skin when i need to ask for something or when i want to get something because if you don't ask you don't get that was my thinking since i organized that concert <laughs> back in the day so the way I went about it was that I just called up various folks and kind of put together the program, figured out what would fit and what would resonate with the audience. It was really straightforward and typically it always starts with why. So I would share, this is my why for doing this. <laughs> and then 
yeah, once I understood the why and also my story, usually, yeah, they would typically say yes. What are you seeing Come Collective Asia as doing now? I'm, I guess you have a vision now. Today? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had, yeah, I know, right? It's just like, it's been a constant re-evaluation of our vision and reason for being since we started. Because we really meant to just have this as a, like, just to do this as a side project. But today, Calm Collective Asia is still working on the same mission, which is to normalize mental health conversations in Asia. And the way that we do this is really by educating and empowering the community. So we're focused on knowledge workers, but we're also starting to bring our public programs to corporate communities. And what we do right now is we've expanded the things <laughs> or the, the ecosystem of what we're doing. While we started out with creating these talks and also some content on social media, so we do these like amazing illustrated posts that actually Alyssa draws. And I would say we're, we're heavily focused on creating relevant content and very accessible and relatable content to create programs to help continue and foster these conversations. So we still organize our talks. We have Calm Circles now, which are our peer sharing circles, where our community actually comes together and joins the conversations. And we also have CalmCon which is our mental health and well-being festival. Everything is online. The reason, and the reason why we do everything online is to really make sure that it's accessible. And someone who's in a depressed state, like the last thing they want to do is to actually step out of the house. We've made it a priority to keep it accessible and keep it online simply because we know that the folks we want to reach out to may not necessarily have the ability to, to get out of their homes. And the other thing that we do is around content, which is still our Still, all the tips that we post out on social media, as well as our blog, we have articles, we have a great team of volunteers that constantly write about very interesting stuff around mental health and well-being. And the other thing that we're doing that is now being developed is that we've been bringing all these public programs into the corporate space, right? So we're actually partnering corporates to normalize mental health conversations at work and also empowering their people to provide support for each other. So in a way, we're kind of like productizing Calm Collective and bringing Calm Collective into the workplace, yeah. but obviously not called Calm Collective. It's like just powered by us. So yeah, that's the current version of what Calm Collective is. And it's always changing. And so you're obviously creating, helping people to be more aware and more sensitive. I suppose for people who are listening, are there any general advice you have for people to be supportive of those who might be going through mental health issues or challenges? I think the most important thing when it comes to supporting someone who's faced with a mental health challenge, or if you're supporting someone or if you're a caregiver, is that you have to try your best to, I guess, practice compassion by simply holding space for them, listening and withholding judgment as well. It's really important to listen to them with an open mind, with curiosity and also care. Oftentimes, it's just simply lending a listening ear or asking good questions to get them to share more about themselves. And the more you ask, the more you find out, the more you discover from them what kind of help they really need from you. The mistake that a lot of people make, and once in a while I'm also guilty of this, is that we tend to listen to someone's problems and jump in with a solution. But that solution might work for you, but not for them. So it's really important to hear from the person what they need. And sometimes they actually don't need anything at all. They just need you to listen. So I think that's the number one thing I would share. And what kind of signs would you look out for? Any symptoms? 
I mean, it sounds like when you were telling your story that you also didn't realize what you were going through and it took a while for you to put it all together. Okay, so I think it looks different for everyone. The rule of thumb would be if your thoughts and feelings, your experience is affecting your day-to-day ability to function, that's definitely a point or a time where you need to start seeking help, or at least a professional opinion. And I hear from yeah. Jolene Kui, who is a psychologist, that she also said that Asians tend to give physiological symptoms, right? Like insomnia, stomach. Yes. So I, yeah, that's actually a really good point. So actually, Jolene was my first therapist ever. Similarly, I had the same experience where when I was growing up, I would get a lot of stomach aches. A good friend of mine, she would constantly have migraines. So oftentimes, stress can come up physiologically. And oftentimes we tend to try to fix it on a more superficial level. Like we just solve the symptom, but not the root cause. So if these kind of things are happening, if you're constantly getting heart palpitations, you can't sleep, if you don't have any appetite, if you've lost your appetite, or if you're eating way too much, like more than than usual, that's when it's time to seek an opinion and hopefully a professional one. (laughs) How do you find the right therapist? I mean, there are so many, right? And you have to shop around. What do you look for? I always tell people that looking for a therapist is a lot like dating. So you got to find the right fit. And sometimes you have to go on several dates before you find the right one. So it takes a lot of patience. But I would say that typically it's important to first look at the credentials. So it filters people out. And then you simply have to meet them and see whether they're the right fit. Because every person has a different personality, different vibe, and you just want to know whether you, you actually like the person and can respect them. Because if you don't, then, then why see them? <laughs> I heard you also share about the cookie jar exercise. What's that? Yeah, so that was something that my current, well, my boyfriend shared with me. I shouldn't say current because <laughs> hopefully it's... <laughs> okay, I hope he doesn't listen, but uh, it's fine. He actually sat me down one day when I was going through a mild depressive episode. This was at the start of 2020, maybe, something like that. He told me, Sabrina, let's take a look at... Okay, so let me introduce you to the cookie jar exercise. And I want you to list all the things to be grateful for and all the things that you're proud of. And I'm going to give you 20 minutes to do this. And I was like, 20 minutes? <laughs> That's a long time, right? So I sat there and I like listed out everything that I was either proud of or grateful for. I would list things like, I DJed at this place. Wow, I would never have thought I would do that. I organized a concert when I was 15. I made my friend happy because I talked to her on the phone today. So, so big and small things. Or like, I ate chocolate cake and it was yeah, really yummy. So... Yeah, I ended up coming up with like a list of maybe 30 things, big and small. And looking at that, having written that out tangibly, I realized that it was super helpful in feeling good about myself. And I was like, oh, hey, life is not that bad. I'm not that bad. And there are things to enjoy in life. So that's a cookie jar exercise. So basically the question is, if you have a cookie jar right now, what are all the cookies that you would put into that jar? And the cookies are things that you are proud like you are proud of or you are grateful for so just doing that once in a while when you're feeling down helps a lot but now i also have a simplified version which is i'll just ask myself what are you grateful for and then i just list three things every day do you feel like having gone on this entire journey that you have found your why you know what i constantly ask myself why and i think my why changes all the time but the, at the heart of it 
I would say, yes, I have realized what my why is. And this was what I found out through coaching. And I discovered that broadly speaking, my why is to help people live more aligned with their true selves. I actually just rephrased that. See, it changes all the time. So yeah, I'm, I'm constantly kind of like re-evaluating it as well. And why is like my favorite question. So yeah, my why changes every day. <laughs> what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I mean, I don't really care about my legacy to the extent that like I don't, it doesn't have to be like, hey, Sabrina was here. But what I do hope to change in this world is I hope that I would be able to contribute to humankind in my own way by helping them embrace a growth mindset so that they would be able to constantly grow and learn and also appreciate themselves for who they are and also to find that self-actualization that I think a lot of people are working towards. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? To have a growth mindset because life is always changing and it's very important to embrace changes and to be able to rethink things, whether it's your beliefs, whether it's the way you do things. I think given the way life is going in general and how things are constantly changing, as humans, we need to be able to adapt and to accept that changes happen all the time and that we need to adapt to it as well. And where can people go to find out more about what you're doing, Come Collective Asia, how to get involved? Where can they go? So for Calm Collective Asia, they can go to www.calmcollective.asia. That is our website. And they may follow us on Instagram at Calm Collective Asia and on LinkedIn. Just type in Calm Collective Asia. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm also there. I also have my website, but just go. <laughs> there are many ways to find us. So go look for us and let's get connected. And I'll put all those links in the show notes so they can easily find it as well. What is the best way for people listening who want to support you? What is the kind of help you want most? So the best way to help Calm Collective is to share our resources, share about our Calm Circles, Calm Con. If you find that your workplace needs uh, some improvement in the mental health department, you can also link us up with your leaders and your HR folks. We will be happy to work with you guys. And that was the end of episode 71. The show notes can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 71. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give it a rating and review at the platform that you're listening to. And do remember to share because every share does help this podcast to grow. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting an incredible Australian startup founder and current head of growth at one of the, large, at one of the fastest growing London-based startups, which is aiming to be the Canva of video editing. It is an absolutely fantastic episode. And if you haven't already, do subscribe to this podcast and see you next Sunday.